I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Andrew, how you doing? I'm, I'm well, you know. The sun is out in Seattle. It is. It is out in Seattle. It's kind of incredible. It's like, what is this orb? Anyway, I have a question for you. What band, or I guess, who do you think created the loudest, most face-meltingest PA speaker system of all time? Okay. Okay, I like this game. I am going to go with Metallica. I would have gone that direction, too. Like, I would have been, like, Ozzy or maybe even, like, Tool or something. But no, it's the Grateful Dead, which kind of cracks me up. And, Andrew, I do not want you to ask me what I think of the Grateful Dead because I'm not going to answer that because I know (laughs) that taking a stance on the Grateful Dead is one of the quickest ways to poke the Internet bear. So the Grateful Dead, they're both loud and polarizing. I didn't see that coming. You know, I I have a few deadhead friends in my life. Personally, I've never gotten quite that into them, but maybe I'll give them a listen on my way home today. <laughs> you handled that well. I bring up music because I was thinking about how I listen to music these days, and it's different from how it was when I was 19 years old. When I was 19, it was like windows down, and it was turned so loud it was like a visceral feeling, right, of, of wind and noise and awesomeness, and it was a great feeling. And I thought about how it wasn't all that different from some of the first experiences I had in bigger, snowy mountains, especially like when I first moved to Washington when I was 18. I remember some of those experiences, and I could feel them in my chest. Uh, it just felt like the emotions were turned to 11. It was elation. It was sometimes it was fear. Sometimes it was like nerves, joy, but it was all very loud. And I think about some of the first peaks I climbed here in Washington. I got like, I had my new crampons and some horrendous plastic mountaineering boots that I'd gotten from an REI garage sale that weren't like the right size. And I remember I would always have blisters and it'd be a random Wednesday and I would be like post holing up a 2,500 feet snowfield and just like loving life, just so turned to 11. Okay, sorry, I have to ask how many water bottles were dangling from the outside of your pack? At least six. <laughs> you know, that, that changes through time, right? The things that, that intimidate me now or the, that make me be like heads up or um, whatever are pretty different from when I was 19 to now when I'm 44 years old. I get nuance, and it's like someone's turned the volume on my outdoor activities down a little bit. And it doesn't mean that they've become 
any less ambitious or anything like that, but it just it just happens that like the volume just doesn't seem quite as loud. And there's all these nuances that come out when you turn it down to four or five, right? You can actually understand the lyrics and you understand the song better. And that's pretty cool. And on one level, I know it might be somehow seem like I'm saying it's diminished, right? That it's not that like sort of raw, heart pumping, in your chest feeling. Or, and that maybe I'm being like old or melancholy, and I'm not. Loud music is still awesome. It's great. But I think I just experience it a little different. And today it's like less fist pumping and more like all these experiences that I have outside. It's like someone stoked this little perfect campfire inside of me. One of those is not better than the other. They're just different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. It's why two people can be on the same trip, but have pretty different perspectives or experiences on that same trip. Exactly. Um, You've got a story about that today, a story about perspective. It's true. And coincidentally, the story comes from a massive fan of the Grateful Dead. Today, we have a story about a month-long adventure traversing some of the most rugged terrain in North America on a Knowles, or National Outdoor Leadership School trip. We talked to a student in the course and one of the veteran instructors who taught it. And the things that stand out to each of them as memorable do not exactly match up. I'm Andrew Burton. I'm Fitzcahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Rowe grew up in Pennsylvania. According to him, it was a quintessential suburban American upbringing, something you might see in an 80s movie. He had an older brother and an older sister. He was the team captain of his high school hockey team, and his idea of skiing was scratching his way down an icy hill in the Poconos. The mountains of the West Coast were a far-off idea until his older brother moved to Seattle. One summer, while in college, he went on a road trip with his buddies across the country from Maryland to Washington State to visit his older brother. We were nearing Seattle, which was our end destination, and we were ready to be done with driving. But when we got to Stoquami Pass, we, like, just our jaws dropped how big some of the mountains right next to the car felt. Because, you know, driving across most of the country, if you're on interstate highways, You definitely go over some mountain passes and you see big terrain, but it's not right out the window like it is going right through the heart of the Cascades. That was incredible. And then we drive into Seattle and we park at my brother's house and then we walk down the street to Green Lake, which is just bustling with activity. And and I'm, you know, pursuing a career in urban planning. So I just (laughs) basically drove through this mountain range that that captured my heart, and then I come across this like vibrant, dense urban city park with a with a lake in the middle and all sorts of recreation and activity and and beautiful urban life happening. And I'm I'm just sold. Like this is my home. When I went back for a sophomore year at the University of Maryland, I told my friends, "Hey guys, this is great. 
college was fun, but I'm actually going to transfer. <laughs> I'm going west, which I ended up doing. As soon as he could, he was out in the mountains trying to keep up with his brother. Literally. I mean, I remember that summer, like every single weekend, we did something that I had never done before because there's not really anything comparable to do. And uh, you can't exactly find the same experiences in the, uh, the Appalachian Mountains near Pennsylvania. And uh, so like fulfilled and hungry to come back for more. Kyle decided to take a year off and work in an effort to save money and gain in-state tuition at the University of Washington. He picked up a job moving people into and out of their homes, reminding himself every day that for every heavy dresser he lugged up a set of apartment steps, he was building up better forearm muscles for climbing in the Cascades. That winter, he got an education in backcountry skiing up in the mountains. And as the new guy, he was frequently learning as he went. Pretty much every day getting packed to the mountain, you know, out of the car, like skins on, climbing the mountain, keeping up with my brother and his friends was, uh, I remember, was was a big struggle because I was, I was basically following behind a bunch of really seasoned mountaineers who had been living in Seattle and recreating the mountains for a couple of years. And I was just day in, day out feeling like, man, I don't even know how to properly like layer my clothing. I'm not even sure exactly what to pack. What are the 10 essentials? All these things were racing through my head and, and just felt essentially unprepared. And also, you know, it's, it's, you can learn from, from people, but uh, there's only so much that on a casual friend ski day that you want to be just drilling friends about all this um, knowledge you're hungry for. The following fall, Kyle enrolled as a junior at the University of Washington. As most of his new classmates buzzed about the study abroad they had coming up, Kyle's eyes drifted towards the mountains and the potential of earning a few credits for school through a Knowles course. He figured he could kill two birds with one stone, becoming a better mountain athlete and also getting closer to his degree. The only thing is, Kyle was nervous. He wanted to get into the most challenging type of mountaineering course that Knowles offered. Uh, it, it's, it's, it is competitive to get in. You had to like, you know, apply and, and send them a, a love letter on why you should be in. And also, you know, put forward a lot of, I think I remember having to like say quite a bit about, you know, fitness level. Cause this is not, the course is not something for the faint hearted. Like you have to be pretty fit to pull this off. I, I wanted to get the most challenging course that I could feasibly take on and logistically, financially take on. My interests were in mountaineering, you know, basically being, getting the foundations that would give me the skills to become a rock climber, an alpine climber, a ski mountaineer, all those things. And that really pointed me towards two courses, which was, one was the Waddington Range Traverse and one was in Patagonia. It was kind of, a simple choice for me. It's like, I, while I would love to go to Patagonia someday for this sort of, for this sort of education, I think I can reduce some of the, the barriers and really just focus it on the kind of mountaineering education that I was looking for. A few months after applying, Kyle got a message from Knowles. He was in. 
When I found out I got into the course, I was just giddy with, with excitement to go on this adventure, but also scared just from looking up online what these mountains looked like and knowing that I felt unprepared with my current <laughs> skills for the little bit of backcountry skiing I had been doing and seeing what was ahead of me, I was definitely feeling like this is going to be a wild ride, and, and it was. The course Kyle had been accepted into was no small feat. The team would spend 30 days straight in the Waddington Range, traversing up and over numerous mountain passes and hiking along the flanks of the namesake peak, Mount Waddington. They would start at the end of a road with no trail, and from there the group would need to navigate through the forest, climb up into the alpine, and live above treeline for weeks on end. There would be no toilets, no showers, no rest huts. They would be completely self-sufficient, carrying all their own clothing, tents, sleeping bags, kitchen equipment, food, snow safety gear, and a library of books for course study. Kyle, for his part, secretly hoped they might get to climb Mount Waddington. But lest that sound easily achievable, it's worth noting how severe the range is. Jamie Musnicki was the lead instructor for the Waddington trip. At the time of Kyle's course in 2012, Jamie had been teaching Knowles courses for a decade after having previously been a Knowles student herself. She specialized in teaching mountaineering, rock climbing, backcountry skiing, and avalanche risk management. Jamie would be going into her fourth Waddington course with Kyle's class, and it's worth mentioning, years later, would go on to become the executive director of the American Avalanche Association. Here's how she describes how epic Mount Waddington and the surrounding terrain is. You know, it's this huge glaciated peak and there's no easy way up Mount Waddington. Like it is steep rock or steep snow and ice, lots of avalanche hazard. Yeah. I mean, it just, it takes, it takes real effort to get into Mount Waddington in the first place. You know, you're going through easily a week approach on foot to get to Wadding, the base of Waddington. And it's just this, I mean, it is surrounded by this sea of equally as rugged, but not quite as tall peaks. After his spring semester at UW wrapped, Kyle drove north through the muggy June heat out of Seattle to the Knowles Pacific Northwest headquarters in Mount Vernon, Washington. Upon pulling into the parking lot, he met his fellow students and the course leaders. So there's 12 students in the course and three instructors. We had a really unique course in that we had 11 guys and one woman. And then also, I'm pretty sure we had the first all-female instructor group. You show up and you're excited, you're scared, you want to meet all these people, but also at the same time, you need to be like practicing putting crampons on mountaineering boots that maybe you have never done before or trying to help someone else who's never even seen a crampon before. I mean, we're talking about taking a lot of people, some of which who have only ever lived in the front country and telling them that like, yeah, you're going to poop in a crevasse without toilet paper for the next month. Here's what we need to do that. I asked Jamie about the pressures of bringing that many young people, 
who, let's be honest, as a demographic, are not known for their risk management or decision-making, into an alpine experience where the terrain can be severe and unforgiving. One thing that we would do on those courses to just set the tone from the start is just have open, ongoing conversations about what our expectations are of each other, like what students can expect of us as instructors, what we are gonna expect of them. And everybody is ultimately responsible for their own well-being and you know needs to take ownership over that as well as the well-being of the group. Like our decisions impact not only us as an individual, but also impact the whole group and the experience of the group. So, you know, that's part of what we're trying to instill out there too, is like helping people gain better situational awareness, even as a, you know, still developing human. After the class's initial days of orientation, packing of bags and prepping of food, it was time for them to depart. They drove north out of Washington state, crossing the border into Canada, and then deep into the north of the British Columbian coastal range. Out the van window, Vancouver gave way to Whistler, which gave way to smaller towns. The surrounding countryside quieted until they turned onto a muddy dirt road and drove to the end of it. The van followed the creek drainage as far up the valley as it could until they were forced to park. Before them lay a quiet lake and an imposing, sopping coastal rainforest. Beyond that would be their home for the next 30 days. So we started in a valley that doesn't have a trail. I'm talking no trail. And you need to ascend into the Alpine. Knowles puts you in a pretty much ski boot of a mountaineering boot and says head that way. So we essentially are going at a very slow pace, like I think like four miles, four or five miles a day. The valley that we were going through had a ton of blown down trees. And so we're essentially tree hopping five, sometimes 10 feet off the ground through this dense forest in these big mountaineering boots. And it's it's slow. Your packs, I want to say our packs were probably I would guess 50 to 60 pounds. They were huge. I mean, it was the biggest pack I've ever, it was like an expedition pack. And you're trying to waddle through this blown down forest in these moon boots. And we have curriculum to cover. So we have to get to camp, set up camp, cook for ourselves, and also leave time for different courses where we cover various things. For Jamie, she says she felt like she was in her element feeling confident about her abilities to guide the group for the next 30 days and tackle whatever hardships or challenges they came across. Still, in those first few days, as the young crew navigated the valley floor along Twist Creek, there were things that kept her up at night. At the beginning of this course, during the first few nights um, bushwhacking up Twist Creek, I was actually struggling personally with anxiety quite a bit. I think the first night I was like, kind of paranoid about bears and like didn't sleep very well. And then the second or third night, I was like awake all night because it was, we're camping in the middle of the bushwhack zone. So there's just like standing dead trees all around. And I was terrified that 
the trees were gonna, it was like kind of storming out and the trees were gonna come down on our tents in the night. Kyle, for his part, says he was blissfully unaware of the danger of bears or potential widow makers falling out of the sky and hitting the group. He says the ill-fitting mountaineering boots and all the log balancing with heavy packs took up most of his mental energy. Slowly but surely, the landscape took its toll. A bunch of us got these gnarly blisters, like really gnarly blisters. I remember like day two, some of us pulled our feet out of our out of our boots and it looked like it was almost like, like a bullet hole had gone through the foot and how like deep and red some of these blisters were. It was pretty gnarly. But uh, the instructors always had faith and they, they knew, you could kind of see it in there, how calm they were. They're like, yeah, that's a bad blister. We're gonna figure out how to repair it and we're gonna put that foot back in the boot and we're gonna keep going. I feel like my role is to see the group and the individuals and the group dynamics that I have and just be creative and open to figuring out what is gonna be the best setup for these people at this time in this place to maximize the learning that they can experience. By day four, the group began to finally climb up out of the valley floor. Steep hiking upon spongy earth led above the blowdowns. Discontinuous snow began to appear. A few hours later, they left the dirt behind entirely, and the trees began to thin. And I remember that first ascent where we kind of like climbed to this ridge line underneath this like, you know, craggy little mountain and kind of poked over the other side. And behind us, we could see the forest we came out of, but in front of us, all we could see was endless, just a sea of mountains and glaciers and gigantic crevasses. We were at this, this, this moment where behind us was what I think pretty much everyone knew, which was forest, hiking, trees, woods, and you're leaving behind what you know as the wilderness and you're entering this new version of wilderness that is just a sea of mountains poking out of ice and it's a wild ride to be in that position and be like, all right, we're going to go through all of that. But at the same time, you're like, wait a second, that's where we're headed? Oh my God. <laughs> for Jamie, these are the moments she lives for. I mean, when you get in there, uh, especially after you've worked so hard to like, get up high and get a view. I mean, it literally is just a sea of these super rugged, jagged, glaciated peaks that just goes on and on and on. It's uh, it's pretty incredible, you know, showing people, you know, being able to show people that is part of my job was an amazing, an amazing experience. At this point in the trip, many aspects of the class stayed the same. The group of 15 still moved across the landscape at a slow pace with heavy packs. They spent each day breaking down camp, walking a few miles, and then rebuilding camp. They still held class each day. But in other respects, things changed dramatically. Surviving on the vast expanse of glaciers required a whole new set of skills. The students traveled across the snowpack in rope teams, weaving their way through an endless maze of crevasses that could swallow them at any moment. 
They practice self-arresting for hours on end, both as individuals and as rope teams. Then once we've got those skills, okay, now we're ready to start really moving on Glacier. And then it's about terrain management, both like macro and micro terrain travel. A lot of us had had been you know, in, on Glacier for the first time, and now you're at the front of a rope team trying to navigate you know, the Franklin Glacier, which is just a, just a sea of crevasses, and it's a gigantic ice river going through this valley. And that's a, yeah, that's a pretty quick crash course in how to travel through the mountains. A little more than a week after the course began, they would meet a helicopter at a rendezvous spot for a resupply. With fast metabolizing appetites, the idea of a new batch of food was a highly anticipated moment. But there was a catch. While the helicopter idled on the flanks of the glacier, the group would need to quickly divide the food stash in two. One half of the meals would go into their backpacks for the next leg of the expedition, and the other half of the food would go back into the helicopter and be flown to a spot 10 days away, which the group would then hike to in the coming days. After a short period of waiting, the helicopter crested the horizon line. Snow and ice swirled violently as the helicopter landed, and then the group burst into action. Helicopter descends, drops a bunch of duffels worth of food, and boom, it's go time. And we have to ration out all this food, quickly get it rebagged and and back into the helicopter for that next drop. That includes everything from like, you know, splitting a big bag of of trail mix in half and portioning out dried um, ingredients like pastas and whatnot. Within a few minutes, the students loaded the second portion of food into duffel bags on the helicopter. Ducking against the blast of wind and snow, the students watched the helicopter disappear over the horizon line as quickly as it had arrived. Their next task was to fit their new cache of food into their backpacks, further breaking apart any food that was too big. We had blocks of cheese. You can imagine like a brick of cheese that we would have to split in half. And one of the guys in my class, Sam, was trying to split a block of cheese and you know didn't have a table or any sort of surface to really work with. Didn't really want to put it on a on like a rock because then it would get all gritty. And so chose to kind of line up the block of cheese on his thigh and was really slowly working it. It had I guess it must have come out of uh, a freezer because it was pretty cold still and was taking a lot of work to really get it through. He finally gets the essentially pocket knife, the multi-tool he's using to like get through it and he just goes thud. He didn't make a sound, but started to like basically look around like deer in the headlights. And when you see someone just stop doing their task and starts to look around, it kind of looks suspicious. And then you kind of realize what's going on and you look at his leg and there's a there's a pocket knife sticking out of it. <laughs> and it was like, Sam, why is that, <laughs> that multi-tool sticking out of your leg? More after the break. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. 
Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Support comes from Kuat Racks. The Piston SR is a single rail bike rack that easily mounts on most roof racks, overlanding utility racks, and truck bed rack systems. The dual ratcheting piston arm grabs your tires and makes no contact with the bike frame. So that's better for your bike, right? Plus, the rack has an all-metal construction, genuine Kashima coat, and integrated cable locks. That translates to being super burly. Kuat has taken their Piston Pro X and elevated it. Find more details at kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this rack. Instructors and students quickly rushed to investigate Sam's wound. Jamie, however, was long gone, riding in the helicopter to stash the next batch of food across the mountain range. You know, it's like a 20-minute flight. We, like, dig a hole in the snow, cache the food, cover it up as, you know, with a bunch of snow so it doesn't melt out, Um, maybe some rocks, like, you know. We get back in the helicopter, and we're flying back, and I think at that point we heard radio communication from our co-instructor who was back on the ground, like kind of overseeing and helping the group with the re-ration process, (laughs) and hear that somebody has cut themselves with a knife. And so I'm like, oh, that's not good. The cut was like, it was a couple centimeters long, and it was gaping open, by a good centimeter. And so for us, it met our evacuation criteria. So Mike King, our helicopter pilot, he was like, well, I can just take him out right now. Like there's a clinic in Tatla Lake. We'll, you know, we can bring him there. A small fact-checking note here. Sam had, in fact, been trying to cut a stick of butter in half, not a hunk of cheese. While Jamie flew back to the group after stashing the food, the instructors bandaged up Sam's leg. When the helicopter arrived, they loaded him in. One of Jamie's co-instructors hopped in the aircraft with Sam to help navigate the process of getting medical care as quickly as possible. After the helicopter departed again, the group sat on the glacial moraine, stunned. We were certain that he was basically out. He was he was not going to return. But Sam went in, got into the clinic in Tatla Lake, got, I think it was two or three stitches to close up this wound. And and then the nurse practitioner at the clinic was like, yeah, you're cleared to go back into the field. Just take good care of it and like make sure it doesn't get infected. (laughs) And so, so literally five hours after cutting his leg, Sam was back with the course. I have no idea where I am how I got here. You know, we're like, okay, great. Like if the medical professional says you're good to go and you feel good about it, like we're excited to have you back on the course. We were very shocked when he came back with a big grin on his face, just like excited to be there, but also a little bit, I think maybe a little bit embarrassed. You know, it's unfortunate when something like that happens. And that was one of the smoothest evacuations from a very remote area. 
evacuations and then like reinsertions into the course from a very remote area that I've ever experienced. With Sam back with the group, his fellow students divided up his gear so that he wouldn't have to carry as much weight on his injured leg, and the class pushed onward. Despite Sam's scary slip-up, the vibes were good. The students, once strangers, were bonding into a well-oiled machine, learning how to quickly set up and break down their tents, cook meals as a team, and navigate the terrain while roped up. With their newfound confidence, they really began to have fun with the course, even if the fun was in an oversharing sort of way. Because this whole thing of taking a bunch of people who had only lived and experienced really living in the front country and saying, hey, you're going to live in the back country and poop in the woods, or actually you're going to poop in a crevasse. You know, we, we like took that and like made it fun and we created what we called the, um, the Waddington shit scale. I mean, I've got my um, Waddington shit scale from June 15th. My delivery was a two. Scenery was a three. Ambiance was a three. The sweep was a two. So sounds like that one didn't come out too well. Oh, the next day on 16th, oh, we made chocolate chip gingerbread that day. That one, uh, Waddington shit scale for me was uh, delivery three, scenery three, ambiance four, sweep four. Sounds like that one came out real easy. Impressed, if mildly grossed out by Kyle's candor, I checked with Jamie about how often this sort of thing happens on a moles course. It's relatively common for groups to come up with their own rating system. Sometimes instructors will introduce this idea, and in part it's just to like normalize that, hey, we are all, all are gonna have to poop out here, and it could be awkward and uncomfortable, and you might not know what to do, but this is how you do it. This is how you do it comfortably. This is how you do it and maintain good personal hygiene when you're out for a month in the mountains without showering. <laughs> yeah, having a reading system is pretty common practice. By the time the group reached their second food cache, they were buzzing with excitement, not just for the nutritional boost, but because they would spend the next few days applying all they had learned over the last three weeks into a thesis of sorts. Groups of students would go out and climb a peak of their choosing in the surrounding landscape and demonstrate all their new skills. For Kyle, the objective he felt was most worthy was a no-brainer, Mount Waddington itself. But first, they needed to get their duffels of food. So a lot of anticipation is, is, is boiling up in us as we kind of approach this second food stash, which is at our base camp for that student-led alpine climb. And we arrive at it, and the bag is, is broken open by some sort of bird. The bird had, you know, pecked through the canvas, exposing the, the food inside to the elements that had, you know, come in the last 10 days and broke it into a few of the um, baggies, uh, one of which I remember vividly was this dried tomato sauce and a bag of, like, dried fruit. And those two things had mixed together to make this kind of slurry of like rained and snowed on tomato sauce that had rehydrated it with like dried mango and dried pineapple and stuff like that. And you're looking at this like in a pile in a bag of like ripped up plastic inside of a ripped open duffel. And you're like, okay, that's dinner. Though Jamie had buried the cache, it was apparent that some animal had dug it up. They weren't going to let less-than-appetizing meals stop them now. 
Kyle and three others enthusiastically plowed ahead and pitched the idea of climbing Mount Waddington. For me, it felt very natural to try to find the most accessible route up Waddington because I don't know if I'll ever be back to this range. I'm sitting right below the mountain. I've read a lot about it. I've heard a lot about this this peak and the kind of stories behind it and, you know, wanted to give it a go. The mountain, infamous amongst mountaineers and alpinists the world over, has no easy summit route, instead forcing climbers through a gauntlet of obstacles, including, depending on the route, rock climbing, steep snow, avalanche hazard, glacial travel, ridge traverses, ice and mixed climbing, and of course, the infamous weather of the coast range and the broader Pacific Northwest. In a typical Knowles course, the final climbing attempt is intended to be climbed by the students without an instructor. But Waddington's notorious reputation and extreme difficulty led the instructors to approve Kyle and three other students' attempt only if an instructor joined them. With a good weather window for the next few days, they set out the next morning. So essentially what we had to do was ascend a glacier and kind of get up on top of a ridge. The the ridge was this like long, continuous ridge line that had a bunch of like gendarmes and brakes and curves and all that that you had to continue to kind of navigate through to keep getting up to what would be like the final push to the summit, which would have been I want to say like some low-grade rock climbing. And so we we finished the approach and got onto the ridgeline and had to essentially chop out a spot for our tent. And so after all of these experiences that we've had that are all new for everyone, now we're in a position where we are, we are going to be chopping out a tent platform on a pretty thin, snowy ridgeline to try to sleep for a few hours and get some rest, which is just even more of a wild experience. And we basically brought one tent for a four-person student team and one instructor. So we were working with a tighter sleeping environment. But honestly, like, it was so cold and just, like, kind of wild to be up on a on an alpine ridgeline like that for the first time in your life that having some other people, you know, pretty cozy up against you kind of was a little bit of security. And just knowing that you had people in this adventure with you and that you had support in, in kind of surviving the night. And then the next morning we woke up, packed up, and took off to kind of kind of continue finishing the climb. This ridgeline had like, it was pretty narrow, but then the capped with snow. So you're kind of both trying to manage your exposure to, to cornices, but also needing to use as much of the width of it to get through various sections. As Kyle and the crew inched their way up along the ridgeline, they came to a carved out section that Kyle described as almost like the entrance to a couloir. It would require them, instead of staying on top of the ridgeline, to traverse into the bowl and move along sideways as a rope team before exiting and gaining the ridgeline proper again. But beneath them, as they traversed across this snowy scoop, lay cliff bands that would result in horrific injuries, if not death, for all of them if they fell and pulled their teammates down. It was just like you were kind of sidestepping into it and kind of plunging your axe at your side, but because the snow is so steep, you're kind of plunging your axe like pretty equal with your waist height. And we had to, you know, as a rope team, we're all roped to each other, get around this feature. And as we're in the like middle of it, one of the um, students in the middle of the rope slipped. And so 
I remember basically doing what I was taught just a few days prior, which was to, you know, get down into self-arrest mode and start kicking my legs to prepare for the weight to the rope to come taut on my harness and essentially start pulling me down as well. But thankfully he caught, he self-arrested before weighting the rope and was able to get traction and we carried on. And we kept going until we got to a point where we needed to repel off of uh, a bollard or if we left behind a picket to keep moving along this ridgeline. And the snow was just sugar and there was just no stability in it to essentially create any sort of anchor that we could repel off of. We had a little meeting, you know, we're hunkered down like on this ridge looking at this repel in front of us and uh, essentially realized that like shit, it's not gonna happen. And, and the instructor kind of explained why. Um, I really appreciated actually the fact that she took the opportunity to give us kind of the reasoning and, and why we weren't gonna be able to to continue. So yeah, we uh, unfortunately had to turn around at that point and we probably got, my gut says probably got about 50% of the ridgeline climb done before we were turned around by, by snow conditions. The crew carefully navigated their way back down the ridgeline, eventually trudging back into camp. And while they were bummed they hadn't reached the summit, they had had long conversations before setting out about expectations and realizing that they were going for a lofty goal. By all metrics, the endeavor had still been a success, applying the skills they had learned, pushing their personal boundaries, getting up high in the mountains, and staying safe. Upon arrival back at base camp, the reality set in. It was time to begin their journey home, descending out of the Alpine and into the lush forests below. As we're packing up to leave our base camp and finally kind of like say goodbye to the Waddington Range, we realized that there was like a missing half block of cheese. And we were, you know, we're already like five days out from really being done with the course and we're looking at all of our bags and we're realizing like there is not enough food. Between the second food stash getting ripped open by birds, heightened appetites from their big outing, and the notorious missing block of cheese that required numerous team meetings about what might have happened to it, the group resigned themselves to their fate. They'd be hiking out on hungry bellies for the next few days. With bittersweet hearts, but a real necessity to get back to more food as quickly as possible, they turned their heads towards the valleys below and began their walkout. We had spice water, um, which was that we took the spices that we still had and heated it up in water for breakfast. And we uh, collected fiddleheads throughout the day. Fiddleheads are essentially like baby ferns that are all still coiled up and it's just like little meaty fern nugget. We're doing this once again, no trail. So we're talking about descending through slide alder and finding fiddleheads where we could and shoving them in our pockets. And then our dinner was essentially sauteed fiddleheads with um, a little bit of spice. And that was pretty much all that we ate for the last couple of days. And pretty much every one in the class, I think 10 out of 12 students in the class, if I remember correctly, lost a significant amount of weight. I lost like 22 pounds over the course of the 30-day class. For her part, Jamie says that running out of food and experiencing food stress isn't all that uncommon on a Knowles trip. It sort of comes with the territory. You know, you do your best to guess at how much food people are going to eat and to also like bring sufficient food but not bring extra food because that's extra weight on your back. 
final ration periods, that this is not the only one that had food stress, I would say. We ate every last little bit. There was a note in my course log where I said like, some made some reference to noon tablets <laughs> and how, how amazing it is that you can get by on like half a noon tablet as your main sustenance six hours into a 12-hour day of bushwhacking. Kyle says he chalked up the whole experience of running out of food as par for the course. Sure, hiking hungry sucked, but isn't that why they were all out there? To test their mettle and become better mountaineers? Still, he has to admit that he was pretty happy to get back beneath treeline. To be descending back into, you know, foliage with birds and plants was... It was felt like we were given a big hug by Mother Nature. Like we were welcomed back into the you know environment that actually was meant for us to be um, inhabiting. You can imagine descending into a Pacific Northwest forest in the middle of July. I mean, there's nothing but smiles there. The trip ended with one final spectacular experience. The group's final rendezvous was a lake where they would be picked up by a float plane. Soon enough, the plane arrived and they all piled in. Exhausted from 30 days of alpine trekking and starving from days without food, the crew watched out the window as the plane took off, revealing all the terrain they had just traversed. It was really emotional to to get into a float plane and just see all of the ground you covered for the course of a month just disappear in like less than a 10 minute float plane ride to civilization. Yeah, I mean, I remember looking at it with like a real heavy heart, but also just to be incredibly grateful for like what the range offered and what was able to teach me, teach me about myself and teach me about, you know, survival in that sort of environment, but then also teach me about climbing and that sort of adventure and skill set. But then we get dropped into civilization and man, take 12 knuckleheads that had just done their first month-long backcountry trip, haven't had food, and drop them at a highway gas station. Complete carnage. In terms of like the experiences that like really had a profound impact on my climbing career and life, I don't think I could really argue that there is anything that comes close to it. You know, I've definitely been pursuing climbing and skiing as my primary like hobby and and passion for a decade now and can name off many things I've done that are technically harder or covered more ground in the same amount of time or was ticking off bigger routes in terms of grade and difficulty, but nothing touches on on that in terms of the, just the amount of time spent out there, like how much you're self-sufficient, you know, there's no second place to it. In terms of a way to learn these skills and these kind of backcountry experience and climbing experience, like versus maybe the traditional method of having a mentor who kind of takes you on various adventures and kind of brings you along on the journey. Sounds nice, I didn't have access to that, so I was picking my education, and and this was, in the end, a damn fine way to do it. And for Jamie, who has since stepped back from Knowles and now only occasionally helps out on expeditions, 
the trip stands out in her memory for many reasons. It was exciting for the three of us. You know, there hadn't been an all-female Waddington instructor team prior to that, to our knowledge. And yeah, we had a good time and like it matters and that we had a great time and things went well. It doesn't really matter that it was all women, like on one hand, sort of, yes. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, we were just people out there doing our job and enjoying what we do. Thank you, Kyle and Jamie, for sharing your story. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto, Bardo and Augustine, Joya, The Brow, Boxwood Orchestra, Faring Gemini, Akeen Orbe, Jules Blueprints, Matthew D. Morgan, Money Cat, JV and the Super Bolton, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists Track Club or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Andrew Burton with additional production help from Ashley Langholz and Becca Cahal. Illustration by Walker Call. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Call, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>